I remember my wedding day. That wasn't an expected day. I knew that was coming up. But the things that I remember most from my wedding day, apart from my wife coming down to, to greet me, which is certainly one of the best moments of my life, apart from that moment, were the unexpected moments. And so, for example, we had booked a catering team and we never thought for a moment, MRI, to ask them what they might be wearing on the day. That was a mistake because this catering team ended up looking like canteen dinner ladies. It was horrendous. I'll never forget the way my wife looked and the way the canteen dinner ladies looked on that day. I mean, they had these sort of black and white, do you remember it? It was horrible. It was just this black and white sort of checkered thing going on on their head. It was like black and white sort of shirt and then like a big sort of black dress with like a red dress over the it was really Welsh and really weird there was a lot of things going on um, that day and and the worst thing about it (laughs) completely was we had a center aisle in the church and then a curtain and then the other side was just this open space that people would be walking in through to get into the into the church well they had set up in the back there and taken over the whole thing so as people arrive, there are these dinner ladies sort of, sort of stirring these big pots of soup. And, all right, love, all right, yeah, right. You think, this is horrendous. This is the worst thing ever. So I remember arriving and just asking them, is there any chance you could like, leave for a little bit and then come back? It was just this worst moment. And then later on in the night, another unexpected moment is we had about 200 guests rock up for our evening celebration. We had a Kaylee, which back then was really cool. Now it's really lame. But back then, this was so cutting edge. And I remember us having a Kaylee, just this barn dance. You don't know what a Kaylee is? Like a barn dance thing. Do-si-do. And all that. It was just great. (laughs) I didn't take part myself, obviously. Just wanted to entertain the guests. And we had about 200 guests that evening. It was really fun. But I remember it got to about six o'clock and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure the bar should be here by now. Because we just like booked out a facility like this. Well, there was no bar to be seen. Seven o'clock, still no bar to be seen. Half past seven, people are starting to get a little bit thirsty. So we ring the bar company. They have never heard of us. They're not coming. They don't know anything about the event at all. 200 guests, nothing to drink. So my groomsmen bomb it up to Sainsbury's, which is like Coles, and they just seek to, to get in. What quickly becomes apparent is it's actually closed. So they're at the door begging, begging, please let us in. There's a wedding. And they actually reopened Sainsbury's and they bought every drink they could possibly find. And they all rock up. I'll never forget them running out the cars with all these drinks. And we were just so excited. You know, there's many things about my wedding day that I remember with great fondness. And yet it's ironic that it's the unexpected moments that tend to stick out most in my mind. Well, here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we come across one of those most unexpected moments. A moment that would have been unexpected to everybody present. A moment that they would not have anticipated. And accordingly, a moment that would have been most memorable for them. Because on this given day, they get to discover even further who Jesus really is. And why Jesus really came and how that applies to them. A most unexpected moment that they would remember for the rest of their lives. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 2. We're going to read 1 through 12. And when he returned, Jesus, to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. 
And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do gather around your word afresh. And we know your word is alive and it is active. It has hands to pursue us. It has feet to run after us. Oh, Lord, I pray today that it would do both of those things. Lord, would we be brandished by your word afresh today? Would we hear above my voice, your voice? Lord, the Spirit in our very souls, would we hear his voice? Would you illuminate these words to us today? Would they come alive in our hearts? Would we have ears to hear? And would our lives be changed as a result? In your precious name, amen. What we have in front of us today is one of the most vivid and unusual moments in Jesus' ministry. And it's all part of a wonderful picture that Mark is painting for us consistently through this gospel as to Jesus' true identity. So right at the beginning, Mark begins to paint, and he begins to paint a picture then of how John the Baptist prepares the way. This guy who's been prophesied about 700 years before he ever even walks the earth has been prophesied about by Isaiah, and John explains that, this, that Mark explains that this is him. This is the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. This is John the Baptist, and here he is preparing a way for Jesus. Well, that ultimate way ends up in John himself pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus then arrives on the scene. Jesus is baptized by John. The heavens actually open before him like a scroll. The Father speaks from heaven, making it clear that this is my Son. And in him I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on his Son, anointing him in the form of the Holy Spirit. And we then see Jesus driven out into the desert, driven out into a lonely place to be tempted by Satan, and rising from that moment completely and utterly victorious. And then we see Jesus himself in the painting starting his earthly ministry. We see it beginning in chapter 1 verse 15 when he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus Christ has come to preach good news. He's come to make good news. He's come to preach good news. He himself introduces his ministry. And then we see Mark, through 13 very specific and crafted stories, explain to us more and more about this ministry. What is this ministry like? What does it tell us about Jesus? And we're presently walking through these 13 accounts at the moment. We have an account then of Jesus calling his disciples with an irresistible call. James and John and Peter and Andrew, come, follow me. And they leave everything they've got and begin to follow Jesus. We see an account of Jesus preaching to the crowds. And they're amazed, they're exclaiming, we've never heard this type of teaching before. We've never heard teaching with authority like this before in our lives. We see a scene where Jesus is casting out demons. Remember the moment? It's just like a service, like we have now. Some guy to your right starts squealing and yelping. It's a horrible scene. And Jesus says, listen, just just stop it, leave. This guy starts rolling around, gnashing of teeth. But Jesus rebukes that demon, and in a moment it leaves. And then we see Jesus healing people in their masses. The end of chapter 1, verse 45, we read, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desert places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus already, as this picture is being painted, is incredibly popular, and wherever he goes, people want to be with him. Wherever he arrives, everybody wants to be with him, they want to see what he's going to do, they're bringing all their sick to him, they're bringing anybody that might be possessed by a demon to him, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And what I love then about this account, what I love about this scene here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is that it's here that Mark pulls back the curtain for us even more on who Jesus really is. He pulls the curtain back even more on who Jesus really is. He uses this unexpected moment to reveal to us who Jesus really is and indeed why he has come, and indeed what then that means for us. He uses this totally unexpected moment to reveal to us those things about the Savior and how that applies to us, and he very skillfully does it by introducing us to three sets of characters. Three sets of characters that are woven together that all pull back the curtain then on who Jesus really is, what he's come to do, And what that means for us. And so this morning, I want us to examine these three sets of characters. And I want us to have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning about who then Jesus really is. Because Mark wants to show us. He wants to keep painting the picture and he wants to show us something unique about this Jesus Christ of Nazareth this morning. Something that when we see it, we realize for every person in this room, what we see here has effects and knock-on effects for us today. For each and every one of us in the room. So here's the first set of characters, the first set of three. Number one, the desperate men. Look with me at verses one and two. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. 
Mark begins to set the scene for us, and it is indeed, I think, an engaging one. Jesus is now back in Capernaum. It's where he was like, you know, a couple of weeks earlier. It's where he was starting to heal people. It's where he spent some time in the synagogue and and rebuked the demon. It's where it's all started to take place. Jesus leaves for a bit. He's preaching the gospel in different towns. He's now come back to Capernaum. He's back at home. He's back at Simon and Andrew's home. And he's once again preaching to the crowds. He's already made it clear to the disciples in chapter 1, verse 38, that that's what he's been sent to do. That he's here to preach the good news. He's here to bring in the kingdom of God through the gift of preaching. What is unique about this scene, though, is here he is gathered preaching to the crowds, but he is preaching to the crowds whilst inside somebody's home. That's quite unique. I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus is in the lounge, and everybody is crammed into Simon and, and to Peter and Andrew's house. They're all pulled into this house. There is standing room only in this house. You know, if this was present daytime, well, this, this is how this would look. It would look like Jesus standing in one of our houses, people flooding all around the house, hanging out the doors, hanging out the windows, the CNN helicopter flying over above, the floodlights all around our home, people gathered all around the house because Jesus is in town. There's this guy that's doing incredible things. We all want to press in. We all want to hear him. And that's what's happening in this scene. The crowds are gathered all around the house. It is standing room only. They're hanging out the windows. They're hanging out the doors. They're hanging out the bathroom. Everybody wants to hush themselves and hear Jesus as to what he's got to say. Well, that's the backdrop then for the introduction of this first set of characters, namely the desperate men. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. <laughs> I love this scene. I mean, here's the, here's the thing. For all of you that have grown up in a Christian home, have been to Sunday school, forget everything you were taught, right? Just remove it from your brain at this moment because this isn't a kid's story. This is an adult story. This is written to us to help us think, to help us perceive what's going on. So shake up your minds a moment from all the kids' books that, you, books that you've seen with, oh, look, they're gently lowering him down on a sheet. You know, forget all about that. Just imagine the scene of what's going on here. This house, with Jesus standing in the middle of the house, is crowded to the rafters. There are people everywhere, and onto the scene walk four men carrying their paralyzed friend in a sheet. And they want their friend to encounter Jesus. They're desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They're desperate to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. And as they walk up to the house, what is immediately obvious is there's no way they're going to get in. So they're immediately faced with a question. It's not a complicated one. What are we going to do now? Now one would assume that the answer is going to be in this moment one of two things. Well, we either wait for him to finish up and hope that he can come out the house, or when people leave, we'll go into the house. Or, you know, we just come back tomorrow. Surely that's a a normal response. But not these dudes. 
These are desperate men. And so when they perceive that there's no way in, there's no way in through the front door, there's no way in through the windows, they begin to make their way up onto the roof of the house because they're coming in from above. They are going to dig their way through the roof to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus that way. I mean, this is totally unexpected, is it not? I mean, imagine the scene. You see, this house, this home, would have been a very typical Capernaum home. And what that means is it would have been a single-story home. These homes had a flat roof. And by the side of the flat roof, most of these homes would then have steps that would lead you up onto the roof. So they didn't have ladders. They didn't need ladders. They had steps that they could get on to these single-story roofs. And these roofs for these Capernaum people, these roofs really, really served not only to keep the rain out and the sun out, they would serve as another floor. So in the summer, grass would actually grow on these roofs. They were really another floor. They were a place that you could enjoy the Mediterranean breeze on a summer's day. You know, that's what's going on. They're like a deck on top of your roof. These are beautiful homes where you could get out there where needed. You could hang your washing out. You could do what you liked on your roof because it was a single floor roof that served as another floor or deck on top of your roof. Well, these roofs then were very well made. The way they would do it is you would basically, you know, you build your walls. You would then build very big beams that go across the walls at the top. Then across those beams, you would put thinner sticks, but you would really rack them up. And then on top of them, you'd put all sorts of things. You'd put long grasses, you would put reeds, you would put brush, you would put briars. There would be a whole load of stuff going on top of all these things. And then on top of that, there would be between about 6 and 12 inches of clay and dirt that would be put on top of the whole thing. So your roof would end up being about between a foot and two foot thick. You know, this would be a full-on, in-your-face roof. Keep the rain out, keep the sun out, another place to stand in the summer, nice grassy area in the summer. Well, these dudes in this moment decide they're going to dig through it. So imagine the scene. Put yourself there. Imagine the scene from outside. I mean, you're one of the unfortunate ones that didn't get into the house to see Jesus. You're just standing by the door. And the next thing you know, you notice there are four men walking past you with some dude in a sheet. And they're walking on the roof. And you'd be thinking, I wonder what they're going to do. Maybe they're just resting, a bit of sunbathing. Who knows what's going on there? And the next thing you notice is they're getting their spades out. And they're starting to dig through. I mean, imagine the scene. It's insane. What are you doing up there? It would be the thing I'm thinking in my mind. It wouldn't come out because I'm English, so I'm nice. But that's what I'd be thinking. What are you doing on the roof? Imagine the scene as they started to dig through the paralyzed guy. Who knows what type of look on his face he's got going on. He's aware he's clearly going to be encountering Jesus. And there is mud. There is grass. There is bits of tree going everywhere, falling off the roof. Imagine the scene from the outside. But then imagine the scene from the inside. Jesus, it's, I mean, imagine the scene. Jesus is, is in the room. He's preaching the good news. He's telling them of the coming of the kingdom. And as he's preaching and everybody's quietly listening on so they can make sure they hear him, it sounds like the block is going on on the roof. There are renovations going on on the roof. 
As these men start to dig through, and, and as the, the pace picks up with all the digging going on, you realize there are things falling in from the roof. Imagine what that would have felt like for the Savior as he's about to preach and as he's sharing the good news with people and all he hears is these mass renovations going on on the roof. Imagine what it would be like for Peter. It's his house. <laughs> and so he's standing, you know, he's squashed in, he can't get out and all of a sudden he's realizing, what are they doing to my house? Imagine what it would have been like for all the people that are sitting there, the scribes, which we'll look at in a moment. They're there in their white robes. <laughs> They're sitting down at the front. This is beautiful. Next thing, they've got bits of mud falling on them. They've got bits of grass in their hair. They've got bits of bush coming in and landing on them. Imagine what it would have been like then when they eventually broke through the ceiling and this crowd that is gathered in the house look up and all they can see is four slightly sweaty, dirty guys looking down on them. Morning! You know, can you imagine what that would have been like? The next thing you know, they're, they're lowering their friend down on a sheet and rope and they're placing him by Jesus' feet. This scene would have been electric. This scene would have been one of those moments that would no doubt change your life forever. I wonder what type of look the paralytic had on his face as his friends lowered him down. Probably one of, please don't drop me, as they lower him down and they put him beside Jesus. This scene is one of disruption. This scene is one of humor. This scene is one of messiness. And Mark wants us to see all those things. He wants us to be in on the drama because he wants to help us see that these men are desperate men. They're desperate. They're desperate because they love their friend. And their friend's paralyzed. Their friend can't move from the waist down. He may never have been able to move from the waist down. And they love him. And so they're desperate to put this friend in front of Jesus because they truly believe that if we can just get him to Jesus, then this guy's got a chance. If we can just get him to Jesus, then Jesus, if it be his will, could heal him in an absolute moment. If we can just get him to Jesus, we know we're putting him in front of someone who can change his life for absolute ever. I mean, who wouldn't want friends like this, don't you think? They're taking you. I'm going to take you to see Jesus. I'm going to take you to the one who can solve your problems in a moment. We can't get in. That's okay. We'll dig our way in. You're going to see Jesus today. These men are desperate. And what's beautiful about them is they truly believe that Jesus can change his, their friend's life. That's why in verse 5 it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, he knew as they gazed in from the rafters above with a big hole in the ceiling, that you really believe that I can change this guy's life, don't you? You're desperate. And you truly believe in me. And accordingly, what a wonderful picture of faith they really are, aren't they? These men exhibit great faith. James Edwards, in his commentary, says this about faith. It caught my attention. I think it's wonderful. He says, faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, 
but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. That's brilliant. Let me tell you that again. Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus. Absolutely. It says in the Bible that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Does it make you a Christian? That means you believe he's the Son of God. Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus. Even the demons believe. But active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest, most heartfelt needs. Even the demons believe that he's the Son of God. But they're not Christians, right? No, faith, true faith, is active trust. True faith is saying, I believe that you can change lives in a moment, so I'm going to dig my way through the house and make sure my friend gets you today, because I believe you can change lives in a moment. It isn't just a faith that says, oh, Jesus is in town, that's nice. Right, anybody for the cinema? It's a faith that says, he is? I I want him, I'm coming. I want to be with him. I believe in him. It's like the famous story of Blondin, which I've told you about before. Blondin was a wonderful tightrope walker. And so he'd spend his life walking tightropes and doing more and more incredible things. And his most infamous one was a time when he was at the Niagara Falls and they set up a a tightrope from one side to the next. And Blondin gathered with the great crowds around him and he walked over to one side and he walked back and the crowd are cheering saying, you are just amazing. So then he got a wheelbarrow and put a sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow and walked over to one side and then walked back and the crowd are just like there. and like, you are an incredible tightrope walker. So he says, well, who believes if I took out these sack of potatoes and put a person in here, who believes that I'd still make it to the other side? And the crowd are like, oh, absolutely. You could totally do this. Which point then he famously announces, okay then, who's getting in? And no one wants in. See, faith isn't just believing. Faith is getting in. Faith isn't just saying, yeah, I think you could. Yeah, great, thanks for that. Faith is active trust. Faith is sitting ourselves in the wheelbarrow and saying, okay, Lord, I believe you. I believe you've got this. I give my whole life to you and I believe as I surrender my life to you that you are sufficient for my deepest and most heartfelt needs. So Lord, I'm in. These men exhibited that type of faith in bucket loads. They are humble, eager, faith-filled men that are desperate men to get their friend beside Jesus because they know and believe that Jesus can change his life in a moment. Well, Mark then very deliberately introduces us to the second group of characters, a group of characters that couldn't be more different. Namely, the questioning critics. Characters 2, the questioning critics. So look with me at verse 6. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Well, there they are. There's the introduction to the second set of characters, the scribes, a.k.a. the questioning critics. 
See, the scribes were the theological heavyweights of the day. They were the guys that everybody looked up to. They were the experts in the law, experts in the Mosaic law. They were specialists in studying the law and interpreting the law and applying the law. And as such then, they were held in very high regard by the Jews. To the Jews, these men were the authorities on how God was to be obeyed. These men were the authorities on what it really looks like to obey God in our lives. They're the the guys that really understand the laws. They're the guy that understands what's going on. And so in Jewish tradition and culture, these would be the men that would be totally looked up to for understanding how we can obey God. And yet, unfortunately, these men, by and large, were also incredibly arrogant, questioning critics. For even here, we find them whether in, a, in a house where there is standing room only, sitting on the front row. Not to learn, but to judge. They're already keeping an eye on Jesus. What's he on about? What's he doing? These crazy things. These rebuking demons and healing. What is up with this guy? So they're not standing at the back seeking to learn. No, they're sitting at the front, dressed in their white robes, waiting to judge him quite a scene. That's why I love the bit when the roof was falling in and it was going all over them. I just, I love it because inside I'm like about 10 years old. You just think, ha ha, I just love that bit. Well, here they are, these questioning critics are on the front row waiting to find Jesus out. And prior to this moment, we've come all the way through one chapter. It appears that Jesus really hasn't set a foot wrong as far as they're concerned. No lines of conflict have yet been drawn between them and Jesus until, he says in verse 5, something that they take great offense to. Because in verse 5, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says this, My son, your sins are forgiven. And at that moment, to those scribes, This is a light the blue touch paper and withdraw moment. This is the moment where for them, it all starts to kick off. Look with me in verse 6 at what they do. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. This is what they were questioning. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, this is all going on in their hearts. But that's just because as yet it hasn't got to their mouths. Inside they are spitting chips. Inside they are angry. They feel violated in this moment. They're standing as judges in this moment. How dare he say that? And so they were all aware the problem wasn't the question. The problem was they were right in the question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's exactly right. These guys weren't fools, they weren't idiots, they were super smart. And so they knew, how dare he say that, because who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew that in saying that, this man is claiming to be God. The problem was not the question. The problem was not their understanding of what Jesus was saying. The problem was their arrogant and sinful hearts. They were not even willing to consider that maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. 
Maybe this really is God incarnate. No. They sit there, and as soon as Jesus says those words, inside they are violently angry. How dare he say that? He's surely a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God, and he is not. Where this would end up for Jesus in the years and months to come would be on Calvary, hanging in a bloody mess on a cross. It starts here. How dare he claim to be God when clearly he's not. And in their hearts, they are angry with the Savior. The problem is not the question. The problem is their arrogant and sinful hearts. They're not coming like the men on the roof as learners, eager, humble men. They're sitting in arrogant disposition towards Jesus, critically judging him already, not even willing to humble themselves to hear more from him. They've made their verdict. They're the authority on all things as far as they're concerned. And so this man must be a blasphemer. You know, to be faithful to this text, to be faithful to this gospel, I think we have to do a couple of things here. First of all, we have to pause and consider and compare these two groups of characters because they're really different. And Mark wants us to see that they're really different. On the roof, we have desperate men, desperate, humble, trusting men that are eager to encounter Jesus because they know if they and their friend can encounter Jesus, then lives will be changed in a moment. So they're pursuing Jesus. They're busy for Jesus. They want to dig for Jesus. They are humble, trusting, desperate men. Inside the house, questioning critics, arrogant, judgmental, critical, disbelieving men, already coming from the disposition of how dare he say that? He surely must be a blasphemer. They're not learning. They're not listening. They've made their verdict. To really be faithful to this text, we have to see those differences. But more than that, I think we also have to ask ourselves this important question. I think it's an important question that Mark, in all honesty, wants us to ask. And it's this. Which of these two groups do I most readily identify with. As you consider your life, as I consider my life, and you consider the tone in which you come to Jesus, which of these groups do you identify most with? The desperate men coming to Jesus with humility and trust, eager to encounter him, believing that he can change lives in a moment. Or more like the questioning critics, standing aloof from Jesus, arrogant towards him, critical towards him. How dare he do that? How dare he treat you like that? How dare he allow that to happen in your life? And so sitting aloof from him, disbelieving towards him, judgmental towards him, maybe even angry towards him. See, I think the truth is we can all oscillate in those things at different times in our lives and we can find ourselves thinking those things on both sides of the coin towards Jesus at different times. But nonetheless, the question still stands in a fundamental way, which of these groups do you most readily identify with? 
And I think you're going to find it's an implied question on several occasions in the Gospel of Mark. Each and every time we encounter the scribes. So like Mark looks up from the papyri in that moment and wants to engage us and say, listen, where do you see yourself? And I want to assure you, being a scribe is never a good thing in this gospel. It's the thing he wants us to flee from. He wants us to be the desperate men on the roof. You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, at least at this point. Listen, thanks so much for coming. You know, you have my deepest and serious respect for coming to church. When you're still working out, I don't even know if I believe all this or where I'm at with God and Jesus and all that. And yet I want to be faithful to you and ask you the question, which group do you find yourself in? But moreover, maybe even than that, I want to ask you an additional question. And it's this one. When you come across verse 5, my son... Your sins are forgiven. What do you make of that? You see, sin in our culture is such an outdated concept, isn't it? You just think, yeah, that sounds really great for my grandparents, but since then we just have disorders. And, you know, we, sin, you know, we've moved on from that. And sin almost doesn't seem to have a place now, apart from like in sort of hierarchy church life. Everything else, you just think, sin, I don't know, we don't hear a lot about that anymore. And yet the Bible makes it clear that sin is man's greatest problem. Man's greatest problem is not cancer, it's not AIDS, it's not the dentists, it's not your mum's cooking, it's the whole list of things that it is not. But what is clear in the Bible is man's greatest problem is our sin. And the reason for that is because of the consequences of it makes it clear in the Bible that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. And because of that, in part, first of all, we're cut off from God in our sin. We've been made to spend time with God. We've been made to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in Him. And yet because of our sin, because we have rejected God, we can't just do that anymore. His holiness and our sin can't just hang out and be best friends. So we're cut off from God. And it also says in the Bible that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And it's very clear all the way through the Bible that when we stand on that day and we face the Lord and we give an account for our lives, where we are found in sin will be an object of his wrath in the context of hell for all eternity. The Bible makes it clear that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet it's that backdrop that makes the good news of Jesus good news. Because Jesus Christ came to earth to fundamentally sort out man's greatest need. What that meant was Jesus Christ came to earth fundamentally to make a way for you and I to be forgiven of our sin, to be cleansed, to be washed clean, to be justified, to have that gap between us and God because of our sin drawn near again. That's what the cross was all about, bridging us between our sinfulness and God's holiness, bringing us back to a Father who made us and who we're meant to find our identity and joy and purpose in. We were made for something far better. And the reason why you read then so much horror in the newspapers is because we rejected him. Not because he messed up, but because we messed up. And yet God in his grace sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. 
He sent his son to die in our place at Calvary, and through that, he made it possible for this to be placarded over our lives. My son, your sins are forgiven. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I want to encourage you, put your faith in him as your Lord and Saviour today, and you will know what it is like for the first time in your life to be then forgiven of your sins. You know what it is like to be right with the one who made you. You will know what it is like to really have a life that makes sense as you realize who made you, why he made you, and what your life is all about. And on that day then, when you stand before him and you give an account for your life, just like I will and you will, you will not hear in that moment, away from me, I never knew you, and then endure the punishment for your sin. In scandalous grace, like I will, through faith in Jesus Christ, you'll hear, welcome home. Scandalous grace. Christianity really isn't about what you can do for Jesus. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for you. Everything to do with what he has done for you. And So right here then, we see two very distinct character groups placarded before our lives. Mark wants us to ask the question, which group do you fall into? The desperate men? Even now running to Jesus, coming to Jesus, believing. If I put my faith in him, this will change my life. Or sitting aloof as a judgmental critic. Uninterested, really. I've made my verdict. You're not God, so leave me alone. Everybody has to make their choice. But it's with that backdrop in mind that we now get introduced to the best character of the text. Number three, the divine saviour. See, the authorities obviously had a problem with verse 5. It all starts to go wrong when Jesus starts to claim that he can forgive sins. And Jesus is aware of that. He's aware of what these scribes are asking in their hearts. So here's what we read then in verses 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? I love this. This is a totally brilliant question, isn't it? Because it forces them to reflect in this moment. Which is easy to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise up, take your bed and walk. But everybody with a brain realizes which is easier. It's easier to say, not easier to do, but it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way of verifying that, is there? I could say that all day. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, Abby, just let you know your sins are forgiven. Yeah, thanks for playing. It's great, yeah. I have no way of verifying that. You know, do I have the authority to do that? Of course not. Maybe Jesus is just blagging it here and now. He's just sort of, yeah, you know, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, yours are as well. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, great. It, it can't be verified. So which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to this paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed and go home. Well, of course it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. 
Well, I think the crowd immediately knows where this is probably going to be going. And they're getting pretty excited about the whole thing about now. And I think the scribes know exactly where this is going. And they get a bit nervous about the whole thing about now. Because it would appear that this is a loaded question. And it would appear that this is a lead question. Jesus is going somewhere with this. Imagine the scene. Hole in the ceiling. Dust everywhere. Scribes covered in mud. Crowd gathering around. Paralyzed man on the floor. Jesus drawing swords with the scribes in this moment. Okay, you tell me which is easy to say. It appears he's going to heal this guy. The drama is electric in the air and then it happens. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen this. Wouldn't you have loved to have been one of those people there in this moment checking out what is going on? I would have loved to have seen what was taking place here. Because this wasn't just a miracle. This was a miracle with a message. This wasn't just a miracle whereby Jesus is giving an act of grace, an act of compassion, an act of mercy to a poor paralyzed guy. This is a miracle with a message. This was a miracle with a message. A miracle with a message that revealed the divine authority of the Son of Man. A miracle with a message that revealed the divine authority of the Savior to meet the greatest need of man. Because which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise up, take your bed and go home? Well, of course it's your sins are forgiven. But to show you and prove to you that I have authority to do that, you can rise Take up your bed and go home. It's exactly what he does. And in doing that, Jesus proved that he had the divine authority, therefore, to forgive as well. Jesus Christ was proving in this moment, I'm God. I have the authority not only to rebuke demons. I have the authority not only to preach and teach. I have the authority not only to heal. I have the authority to forgive sins. It is here in this moment as Mark pulls back the curtain ever increasingly on what Jesus has done and who he is that we get to see the divine authority of the Savior to meet the greatest need of man, namely our sin. Jesus Christ reveals to everybody, I'm God. And for all those who put their faith in me, here's what I'm going to say about you. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, you're free. It's incredible, isn't it? I would have loved to have been there. I'd love to talk to the guys when we get to heaven more about it. What was it like? Was there like big bits falling on anybody's head? Any accidents? I would love to talk to them more about what was going on here. What was it like when, when this man stood up and rolled up his bed and walked out? What did Peter do about his roof? You know, there's certain things we want to ask. We want to be aware of in that moment. Well, unfortunately, we can't be there. 
And yet I'd want us to understand that for every one of us in this room, the truth of this text has knock-on effects for each and every one of us. And here's the point. Here's the take-home in closing. What this teaches us is that if we have truly put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, then just like with the paralytic, our sins are completely forgiven too. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because that's the reality of this story. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, then just like with this man who got lowered down on a sheet, who arrived paralysed, helpless, unable to do anything, then if we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, then our sins are completely forgiven too. Is that not good news? It's incredible news. Romans 3 tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us in this room. And yet what it also makes clear is for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Romans 4 verse 7, then blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That's incredible. Psalm 103 verse 12 it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. My friends, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we really make him our Savior and our King, in that moment he declares over our lives, my son, your sins are forgiven. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. And that's why we can then say with Paul in Romans, blessed then are my lawless deeds because they are forgiven and my sins are covered. It is scandalous grace, but it is the truth of the gospel. It is the truth of Mark chapter 2. Kent Hughes then says it this way. I love this. He says, total forgiveness is something to celebrate. It is beyond anything positive thinking, therapy, or hypnosis can provide. It is complete, extending to the conscious and unconscious sins in our lives. Because God knows all things. And because Jesus' blood is infinite. I remember my first experience of God's forgiveness and how his Holy Spirit gave me the assurance that my sins were totally forgiven. The burden was so consciously lifted that I felt as if I could float. And anyone can be forgiven, no matter what their sin is. Listen, for total forgiveness is totally complete through Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Total forgiveness is totally complete through Jesus Christ. My friends, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then just like with the paralytic, your sins are completely forgiven too. Now maybe you're here then today and you have a sin in your life that Satan continues to tempt you to despair of. It's something that you've asked for forgiveness for a hundred times. And yet at various times, Satan just slams it back in your face. It's as if you haven't been forgiven of it at all. You just feel it all over again. And maybe you have a sin that you've been committing even this week. And even as we're singing, you're aware, I just don't deserve to be here. This is crazy. I just feel wrong. And you've asked for forgiveness from the Lord, but, but you still feel the shame you still feel the dirt that our sin brings us. 
friends, I want to encourage you, if that's you, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you must look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. Jesus Christ has paid it all for you. Jesus Christ has paid it in full. There is nothing left to pay for you. There is no more shame and bondage on your life because Jesus carried it in your place at Calvary. And so when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you look and you remind yourself, he's paid it all for me. There is no more shame for me. There is no more guilt for me because I am free. And having looked then at him, I want to encourage you then gaze at what he says in Mark chapter 2 verse 5 and apply it to your own life because that's why it's here and realize that which has been placarded over your life through faith in Jesus Christ is this my son my daughter your sins are forgiven my friends Jesus has paid it all so live in the good of it Live in the good of it. And as you do, would all glory go to him? Because he really has paid it all. Let's pray. Lord, we love to read about you. Because every time we read about you, we learn more about you. And Lord, it's incredible in this moment to realize that you have incredible divine authority. The divine authority not only to heal, the divine authority over the kingdom of the earth. But you have authority to forgive us of our sins. Lord, how can we thank you enough then for forgiving us? For taking our place at Calvary so that we could sit here as your people clothed in your righteousness. Lord, you no longer look at the the dirt and the filth and the shame of our lives. You accustomed yourself with that dirt and filth and shame at Calvary. You know all about it. And you paid the consequences of it in full. So Lord, would we live then in response as amazed people, as forgiven people who are humbled and amazed and who cannot help but give you all the glory because you dealt with our greatest problem. And for that, you should always receive our greatest praise. Amen.